Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, Montreal in the books. We're on to Cincinnati as the head football coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, would say. It's finally happened, everyone. Rafa Nadal has defended a title on hardcourt. What does that mean? Why were Rafa fans getting offended when I when I said that? <laughs> we'll talk about that uh, at the top of the show. Uh, at the end, we will finish with a preview of Cincy. And it, it, they're already underway. One day, everyone, when, when this channel goes full-time, if this channel goes full-time, I will not do the tournament previews on Monday. But for now, the show's on Monday. So for full disclosure, I'll give a little update. Uh, already an upset, Marin Cilic is out. 14 seed, lost to Radu Albot, 6-4, uh, 7-6. So Cilic, who had a really nice draw, in my opinion, he can't take advantage and is out in the first round to Albot. Uh, Puy has defeated Dennis Kudla. Kechmanovic has defeated FAA 6363 on Twitter. I saw FAA is still having uh, loads of trouble with his second serve and his serve in general. A match that everyone's looking out for Murray, the return to singles. He's taking on Richard Gasquet. Right now, it is two all in the first set. I have that recorded and I'm going to watch that um, as soon as I'm off the air here. So that's for full disclosure. That's where we're at. But Cincinnati preview at the end of this video. Um, once we're done talking about Medvedev and Nadal, uh, then I will go into my updated U.S. Open power rankings. No time for comment response. It is a loaded one. I'm going to need some coffee. Um, but I'm very excited. So I tweet out on Twitter at Gil Gross with an underscore. Please follow me. Um, if you want my, my reactions as I'm watching tennis matches and you don't like to, you don't want to wait until I put out videos, follow me on Twitter. I go, Nadal has defended a, a hardcore masters or a hardcore title, not even masters, just, he's never defended a title on hardcore. How in the world did it take this long? And people got upset. They said, what do you mean? How did it in the world did it take this long? Now, it was a bit of a rhetorical question. I understand that the, the challenges and the obstacles, he's had a lot of injuries on the surface, and he's ushered in the same era as Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. But isn't it still a little bit wild that a top three tennis player in the history of the sport nearly went his entire career without defending a title on the most common surface on tour. 
Isn't that a little wild? I mean, this is a guy who just won his 10th hardcore Masters title. His 10th. He's won three slams on hardcore. It's a little bit less surprising that he hasn't defended a, you know, one of his three slams on hardcore. But, I mean, this guy wins a good amount of hardcore tournaments. And coincidentally, he has never defended a title. This doesn't really mean anything. It's just putting meaning into, and this is what the media does. We take what happens and we try to give it a little added meaning, a little extra meaning to it. And you can't fault anyone for that. And I'm taken off guard by how some people react because I don't, I'm not obsessed with the GOAT debate. I don't have a, a horse in this race. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm sometimes caught off guard on how people react. And apparently the fact that Nadal had never def defended a hardcore title is something that Djokovic fans and Federer fans use against Rafa Nadal when they're arguing, when, when they're trying to kind of take away from Rafa's accomplishments, which is absurd. It's ridiculous because defending titles doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This was just a coincidence. It's an interesting, it's an, it was an interesting stat, I think. I think it's a little wild. But it doesn't actually matter. Would you rather win five U.S. Opens or would you rather win three U.S. Opens in a row? If you look at someone's career. I'd rather look at someone and say, well, they won the U.S. Open five times than, well, they won three, three in a row. They defended it twice. Who cares? Five is better than three. Winning titles matters. Winning the same tournament twice in a row doesn't matter. So Nadal fans got a little sensitive about this stat. And I, I guess I don't blame them if, if they're, if, it's often used against Nadal. I would never use it against Nadal. And I've never, I've never thought about this. In fact, I had never thought about the fact that Nadal had never defended a hardcore title until I predicted him to win this tournament. And I did so confidently. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not really having many qualms about picking Nadal here. And then someone commented on my video. So you're saying he's finally going to defend a hardcore title. Until then, I had forgotten about that stat because that's how irrelevant it is. But it's still interesting. And it doesn't mean, you know, it's it's not anti-Nadal to point it out. Okay. So um, let's get to the match. Medvedev and Rafa Nadal in the final. Medvedev's first hardcore masters. And the Russian absolutely blazed through this tournament. He won two matches in under an hour. He beat the number two seed, Dominic Team, in under an hour. He won every match in straight sets. Nadal never really found his game leading up to the final. I don't I don't think he did, at least. Against Fabio Fanini, he lost the, the first set 6-1 in the quarterfinals. Monfils in the semifinals had to pull out with an injury after his marathon win, uh, three-set win over Roberto Bautista Agut. So he didn't play a semifinal match. He didn't look that good in the lead-up. Fanini was kind of hampered by an injury, although Nadal did play decently well for sure in those last two, in those final two sets against a tough matchup for him and Fanini. But his forehand didn't look good at times this week. He, you know, he sometimes had trouble controlling it. 
I I thought that he looked a little bit rusty at the net compared to how solid he usually is. If you're going off form, then you think Medvedev has a really good chance at winning this final. Kind of reminded me of the Wimbledon semifinal. Going in, Nadal was playing better than Federer. But you got to look at skill set. And once again, we saw form proved to be irrelevant coming into this final where Medvedev was playing better tennis. Didn't It didn't matter because there are a lot of ways that Nadal um, can bother Medvedev and there are holes in the Russians game. There are so many parts of Daniil Medvedev. There's so much to like about Daniil Medvedev, but we've seen this a lot. And, and one example that I can pull off the top of my head was against Federer at Indian Wells when he lost uh, either 6-2-6-4 or 6-4-6-2. Uh, but sometimes he, he plays the higher competition and he did have a win against Djokovic at Monte Carlo this year. But he plays against the higher competition and Djokovic wasn't at his, at his best there at all. Um, and sometimes when his plan A doesn't work, he panics. And I don't think he's shown to be someone who really raises his game when he plays the best guys. And I think when his plan A doesn't work and things are going wrong, he stops playing within himself. There's a little bit of panic in Daniil Medvedev. And his level can really drop. It can really get down in the dumps. And he played his worst tennis of the week against Nadal. There are, there, there are some exploitable issues with Medvedev's game. He needs to work on his second serve. Um, he needs to work uh, on, on, well, he could work on his forehand. I don't know how much better that's going to really get throughout his career because the technique is, is so unorthodox. Uh, but Nadal did so well uh, making him uncomfortable. And I want to look at some of the ways he did that. This is the thumbnail. Rafa looks very happy. He loves Montreal. He loves Canada, actually. He wins Toronto. Um, he's won Toronto plenty of times as well. I think, at least. I just know he wins the Rogers. Rogers Cup is his favorite non-clay Masters. Um, so let's take a look at, at some of the things that Nadal did to exploit Medvedev's weaknesses. Nadal uh, played his best match of the week in windy conditions. Once again, showing that, that Rafa's a great player in the wind, by the way, and that he his footwork, he, makes, he can make so many late adjustment steps, and he has so much spin on the ball. He plays with so much margin uh, that he's able to still take big cuts even in the wind where some players are more uncomfortable and, and they're not really going for as much. Nadal is, is very much unfettered by uh, windy conditions. And we saw that again. He found his forehand, which is really important against Medvedev because, you know, Medi can be, can be very, can be very hard to hit through with his movement for his size. He can be very consistent. So you need to find offense. Very important. And a lot of players can't. If you can't find offense against Medvedev, he remains very unattackable, very consistent. You know, deep backhands, deep forehands, great shot tolerance. If you can't find offense against him, you're in big trouble because you're not going to really outlast him. So let's take a look. Uh, Nadal found his forehand and found offense in some very creative ways. One weakness for Medvedev 
is and and this I'm going to kind of combine two and one. So he doesn't handle slice well. And that's how to get to his backhand. His backhand is really good when he hits it high because he likes to flatten it out. Likes to hit the backhand flat. For that, he needs to hit it over the level of the net. So he wants it high. That way he can get the angle. That way he can hit his penetrating flat backhand. Um, if you slice it, you keep it low, and you move him inside the court. You not away. You not only mess with his court positioning by putting him inside the court where he can't really defend and grind as well, uh, but you also you don't let him hit that flat backhand. And what he has to do is he has to kind of roll it cross court without a lot of aggression. That's all he can really do when it's when the ball is under the height of the net. He doesn't have the kind of shot that, that Djokovic has, where sometimes Djokovic can do a nice job of flicking the backhand down the line, even though it's kind of at his ankles. It's not Djokovic's favorite shot, but he still has it. Where Medvedev doesn't have that topspin backhand flick, all he can do is, is kind of slowly kind of roll the ball cross court. Sometimes he can get a nice angle, but you can't but you can anticipate it. But what if you chip and charge Medvedev's backhand? What's he going to do then? Because you got to find some aggression when someone charges the net and you got to try to pass. So check out this. Nadal, it's the game. It's 1530, a really important point. Medvedev tries a drop shot. So this isn't really all Rafa's doing. But he, he decides to uh, slice deep to Medvedev's backhand and go to the net. And Met and Medvedev right now uh, just doesn't really have the racket acceleration to rip this cross court passing shot. It's very slow, and the doll's there in plenty of time, and he hits a drop volley. That is a double bounce. Sorry for the lack of uh, cropping on on that last screenshot. If you're watching on YouTube, um, all in all, Medvedev struggles when his opponents get to the net. So anyone who's very talented at getting to the net, who can serve volley, we're talking about Federer, we're talking about Kyrgios, Nadal can do this. Uh, Medvedev struggles to pass his opponents because he doesn't have a lot of topspin. So he doesn't find the same angles and he doesn't dip it below the net at players' feet where it's hard to volley. So it's a really good play going to the net against Medvedev. Nadal, 11 of 12 at the net. And I believe that that was Rafa's plan B. If he started to have a lot of trouble from the baseline and he mixed in net play in that first game where Medvedev was was quite resilient from the baseline, if if Nadal was having a lot of trouble from the baseline, I think he could have I think that he was going to start to really live at the net. It never came to that because Nadal started dominating at the baseline. And if Nadal can dominate at the baseline, he'll always prefer to win that way. But I believe that that was a plan B for Rafa. Uh, so I talk about the net play. I also talk about Medvedev having trouble handling the slice. How about this? Uh, this is courtesy of Tennis Abstract's match charting. Nadal won 22 of 32 points when using the backhand slice. That is 69% of points using the backhand slice and 32, 32 out of 202 points in the entire match. It's a pretty nice chunk. So a lot of slice coming to the net with great success. And again, could be more success. Everything was working in Nadal's favor. But, but these are some ways to make Medvedev uncomfortable. Of course, if you find his forehand, 
that's another way to have success because it's so much it's such a weak it's a much weaker side than his backhand but i wanted to challenge myself and kind of look for ways that uh, how nadal was actually troubling medvedev's stronger side medvedev's backhand it's one of the best shots on tour right now in my opinion but nadal found ways to make it very uncomfortable for medvedev here's an example he's on his back foot here up a break early in the second set and instead of hitting this forehand kind of middle, kind of trying to get some depth on it and trying to trade with Medvedev, you know, Medvedev wants this. Medvedev wants a rally ball here to play with. But Nadal's going to make him uncomfortable with this short angle. I think he found amazing angles all match with his forehand. He had a great feel for this. So this is short in the court, and he's going to make Medvedev move inside the court and hit a backhand. Well, what's strong about Medvedev's backhand? It's so consistent. When it's at its best, I mean, he can go through entire matches where he barely misses backhands. It's very deep and can be very penetrating. And from the middle of the court, he's really good at picking the corners. He's not as good being aggressive out of the corners. So when he's... When he's pulled out wide, he's not as good at being aggressive with the backhand. He's amazing at being aggressive with the backhand when he's in the middle of the court. So Nadal's going to make him move inside the court and put his backhand in a position where it's under a lot of pressure because Medvedev needs to make a lot happen with this backhand. And he's actually not all that comfortable doing that. He likes to slowly build the point with his backhand. He doesn't necessarily want to be in a position ever, whether it's his backhand or his forehand, where he needs to hit a winner. So he's just going to try to hit this hard cross court at Nadal's forehand, which is probably the right play. But as you can see, based on where he was positioned in the court, he really can't recover. So he's completely out of position. And although he hit this hard to Nadal's forehand, uh, Rafa does a great job timing it. Lots of net clearance with his down-the-line uh, forehand. Changes direction and hits this down-the-line winner. So he did this with his down-the-line slice backhand where he draws the short reply and then takes, it, uh, takes his forehand down the line. Uh, anytime he can get it low to Medvedev's backhand, anytime he could get Medvedev inside the court... Um, he could kind of anticipate the cross-court backhand from Medvedev and take advantage. But I just want to point out how he, how it played out in the very next point. So now it's 40-15, and once again, Nadal's on the run, and he hits this short angle forehand. It's going to take Medvedev outside the singles line and put him in a position where he's off the court, he just ripped this a similar shot cross-court and got burned for it. So now he's going to try to go down the line. Again, this is outside of Medvedev's comfort zone. He feels like he needs to hit a winner. And Medvedev doesn't want to be in a position where he feels like he needs to hit a winner. He wants to play long, grinded-out rallies. He misses this by about seven feet, maybe more. It wasn't even close. So I do feel like Medvedev got out of his comfort zone. Nadal's um, offense was more than he was used to. Medvedev gives Rafa a lot of rhythm, so I'm not surprised that Nadal found his found the range on his forehand, uh, had success at the net. But also, I, I do feel like there was a, a bit of panic from Medvedev, which, which we see a lot. Because in the first game, 
I tried to find a stat to prove this. This is the best I could do, but I, I kind of like it. In the first game, there were two rallies. One was a 24-shot rally. One was a 30-shot rally. Medvedev won both. Medvedev has the best shot tolerance on tour right now. When I say shot tolerance, um, I mean, um, how many balls are you willing to play in a rally with your regular shot selection? How many balls are you willing to play in a rally before you're trying to end it? Before you and where you're still comfortable um, playing within yourself when it comes to shot selection. Medvedev won a 24-shot rally and a 30-shot rally in that first game. Nadal's forehand wasn't really penetrating. He was hitting against the wind. Um, and it looked like this was going to be quite the battle. For the rest of the match, when Nadal started having more success, Nadal won nine of the last 10 rallies over 10 plus shots. So in the beginning, when Medvedev was still kind of calm and focused and feeling like things were okay, it was, you know, the classic Medvedev playing Medvedev's game and just refusing to miss and staying patient, not going for more than he normally would. He's not an aggressive player. He doesn't like to go for very much. And he won with shot tolerance twice in this first game where... Nadal, he actually got to Nadal's legs, in my opinion, in both of those rallies. But that was it. First game of the match. And I just don't feel, I feel like this happens a lot. I feel like it happened against Federer at Indian Wells. Medvedev just has no plan B. And when it gets hard against the top guys, he doesn't continue to play his game. It's also credit to Nadal because where Medvedev normally has this massive advantage when it comes to shot tolerance when he plays Nadal and Djokovic um, he doesn't really have that massive advantage I do think he probably has a slight advantage but uh, he he doesn't he doesn't use it very well and when he plays elite generate <coughs> excuse me when he plays um, elite offensive generators it messes it messes up his game and I talked about it with uh, Nick Kyrgios in the DC final Um, you know, I mean, love all in the second set. Last thing I'll say about this match at love all in the second set. So I just showed you the game at one love and a couple of the points where Nadal was able to c consolidate this break, but at love all Medvedev hits two double faults and a, a sitter forehand unforced error. Didn't make Nadal do much to me. That wouldn't have happened in the first game of the match. And it didn't happen in the first game of the match. Because I feel like there's a lot of panic in Medvedev when his plan A doesn't go right. There's no plan B. Let us go to the U.S. Open power rankings. The last time we had a power rankings, let me just check the date on this. It was July 22nd. It is now... August 12th. It has been a while, my friends. There it is. No movement at the top. Novak Djokovic comes in at number one. Nadal at number two. Federer at number three. Team at number four. 
Daniil Medvedev is the first mover. He moves up to number five, and I'd say he's knocking on Dominic Team's door. In the last two years, no one has won more hardcourt matches than Daniil Medvedev. In 2019, nobody has won more hardcourt matches than Daniil Medvedev. He, he made the finals, uh, or the final rather, in Washington. He's made the final in Montreal. And uh, he's really, in, in all of his wins, he's looked so comfortable, so impressive. And uh, he's an incredibly tough puzzle to solve, and I hope that's clear. But, you know, when I'm breaking down a match between him and Nadal, it's going to sound a little bit different than um, as opposed to if I'm breaking down a match between him and, and Karen Hatchinov, let's say. Uh, Kane Shikori is at number six. He doesn't move. That's where he was before, uh, giving Nishikori respect for his consistent results in majors and um, respect for his prowess on hardcourt. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas moves down. He was at number five. Now he's down to number seven. Uh, he could really use a, uh, a big result in um, Cincinnati. Gilmon Fis made the semifinals in Montreal. He was at number 10 in late July. So... I've bumped him up two spots to number eight. Nick Kyrgios enters the rankings despite his first round loss to Kyle Edmund uh, because of his performance in D.C. I think he enters this top 10. And number 10, I was between Roberto Bautista Agut and Karen Hachinov. Uh, so I, I would say, you know, Hachinov and him are kind of at number 10. But I went with, uh, I went with RBA. Um, wait. Did he move? Let's see where he was. Let me check my July 22nd. Oh, he was at number seven. So RBA, the reason I went with RBA is because he was at number seven going in. So I moved him down to number 10, but uh, Hachinov is going to challenge for that spot possibly uh, be with, uh, with, with his performance last week if he can follow it up in Cincinnati. There you have it. Your August 12th U.S. Open power rankings. Uh, there will be another... Next Monday, after Cincinnati, we'll check back in. Speaking of Cincinnati, it is time for the quarter-by-quarter quarter preview. There's a lot There's a lot of very kind of exciting um, potential matchups, and I just want to read them off before I, before I get to this. I mean, if you think about how many possible, let's say, uh, popcorn matchups there are, <laughs> as I call them, not necessarily early round, but, you know, Andy Murray's back. I'm getting ready to watch this match as soon as I'm done here. Djokovic and Kyrgios are in the same quarter where uh, they can renew their, their rivalry, and I say that in using air quotation marks. Medvedev and Tsitsipas, um, the rivalry that Daniil Medvedev has flat out dominated, they could potentially play in round three where, uh, you know, I'm sure, I mean, it's just such an interesting head-to-head -head at this point. Nick Kyrgios flew them on the same charter to Montreal, so maybe there's no more personal heat. Nick Kyrgios has has uh, has been a peacemaker. He's he's bringing he's bringing Medvedev and Tsitsipas together. He's a uh, uh, saint, uh, a pa patron of world peace. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Felix and Zverev could have played in round two. That's not happening with uh, Kecmanovic beating Felix. Um, Shapovalov, Fanini, uh, Monfils, um, TFO, maybe round one, and Federer, as we'll get into, has a, has a nice little gauntlet, so there should be some nice Roger Federer matches uh, throughout this week. Let's start with Djokovic's quarter. Top seeds are Karen Hatchinov, Fabio Fanini, and John Isner. 
Um, I do have Novak Djokovic getting through. My dark horses, one of them is already lost. Uh, I put Dennis Kudla there because this court is lightning quick, and that's uh, that always gives Kudla um, a, a good chance. The American is a speedy court specialist. Uh, but the dark horse, most likely unseeded player to make the quarterfinals or further, it's got to be Nick Kyrgios. Not surprising at all that he uh, that he lost to Kyle Edmund in the first round Montreal, uh, because I still don't think he his body is health enough healthy enough or will be healthy enough until he puts more work in to go deep into tournaments week in and week out. Now that he's kind of well rested, he lost early in Canada. He's got a better chance at Cincinnati, and uh, these conditions should be nice to him. One of the faster hard courts out there for those who, who are um, wondering about that. Upset alert, Fabio Fanini. He plays Denis Shapovalov, who's always best on North American hard courts, Shapovalov. Um, and these conditions are uh, too quick for Fanini's liking. Shapovalov just needs to serve well, and I think he's got a pretty good chance in that matchup. Let's take a look, I guess, in some more detail at Djokovic's path, Sam Query or PH Air Bear um, in the first round. There was there was a time where you know you could have said that Query is a tough one for Djokovic, but I feel like that time has kind of passed for Sam Query. Uh, Isner is in Djokovic's section. Isner not playing good tennis right now. Karen Hatchinov and Nick Kyrgios is a potential round two matchup. So um, that could be definitely one to watch. Um, but certainly Djokovic I have coming through. Let's go to Roger Federer's quarter. He has Stefano Tsitsipas. He has Daniil Medvedev. He has Nikolos Basilishvili. Uh, dark horse in this. Andre Rublev um, had a terrible back injury. An awful back injury earlier this year, uh, and I, I might have the timing of it a little bit off, but I think it was earlier this year. And it's very easy to forget that Rublev is a guy with punishing ground strokes off both wings who people like John McEnroe were saying uh, will definitely win a major. I mean, he was right in that next-gen mix, and he has this injury, and people forget about him, but uh, played some inspiring tennis in post-Wimbledon clay, clay court season. Not the most important time of, of year, but... Uh, He's someone to to keep your eye on now as he starts to get healthier, starts to get back in the groove, um, and pretty good on hard courts. His breakout tournament was, uh, his breakout major was the U.S. Open a couple years back, so he does like these courts. Although, I will make the point that the conditions in Cincinnati and the conditions in New York are not similar, and I'm sure I'll get more into that at a later date. Upset alert, Nikhil, uh, Nicholas Basilishvili. Uh, speedy courts don't really do much for for the powerful Basilishvili. Where um, he, I'd rather I'd rather see him on a court where he has time to really load up his power, um, and a court maybe that's harder to hit through, where Basilishvili has an easier time with his power to hit through a court, where his whereas his opponents might not have the power to hit through the court. When when the conditions are speedier, Basilishvili doesn't have that advantage. Um, let's see who he gets in the first round. Oh, he gets Rublev, right. So um, I think Rublev has a good chance in that one. Federer could get Berrettini right off the bat. Uh, he could get the winner of um, my popcorn matchup. Vavrinka and Dimitrov are playing again. 
What is going on here? Somebody end this madness. Poor Grigor Dimitrov is not getting the best of this matchup. And they play in the first round every single tournament. And that is a scientific fact. Every tournament. Check the records. It's, uh, it, it's really uncanny. It's, it's unreal. So they're playing again in the first round. Uh, so Federer has them. Um, and then on the other side, he gets Daniil Medvedev and, and Stefanos Tsitsipas. Who, I mean, Medvedev, I think, is a, a really nice... I think Federer is a really difficult matchup for Medvedev, but still the best player in the bracket who doesn't have his own quarter. So Federer gets Medvedev if he gets through Tsitsipas. Um, and if he gets Tsitsipas, well, they've played a lot of close matches, Federer and Stefanos. But um, no one who I don't give Federer the upper hand against. So that early popcorn is Vavrinka Dimitrov. Did I talk about early popcorn in Novak's quarter? It was uh, Fanini and Shapovalov. I did talk about that, didn't I? Dominic Team is the number four seed after losing in under an hour to Daniil Medvedev in Canada. He has Alexander Zverev, who I feel like they always share a quarter as well. I feel like it's always Zverev and Team in the same quarter. Maybe I'm crazy. Bautista Agu also in this quarter, and Marin Cilic was in this quarter. He lost this morning. I have RBA getting through. This was a this is a really this is a tough one to pick. The entire bottom half of this bracket is tough to pick. Obviously, you have Djokovic and Federer on the top half of the bracket. Uh, the bottom half is more wide open. Um, but RBA doesn't mind the fast courts. Likes a low bouncing court. Um, playing good tennis all year and a, a, a more favorable draw. If you look at if you look at this. If you look at this quarter, you have RBA on a side with Zverev. Felix is out, so it's Kachmanovic. Zverev can't figure himself out still. Uh, Monfils is very dangerous, but RBA, um, who, who RBA just lost to, so so that's the biggest that's the biggest test there. On the bottom half, it's actually a little bit more wide open. Where, you know, since Chilich lost, team gets the winner of Murray Gasquet, Schwartzman, Jera, Radu Albert. Um, but the courts are just too fast for Dominic team. I mean, the, the, this, this is like, this is just not conditions that team is going, these are not conditions that team is going to enjoy. So that's why I kind of feel like the winner of this section comes out of the top half. I either think it's Monfils, not overly likely with his health. Um, and, but you know, Zverev, RBA, I, I went with RBA. Um, I think you can kind of understand why, uh, this last quarter was supposed to be Rafa Nadal's quarter. It is now Kane Shikori's quarter. The six seed gets his own quarter. Would you look at that? Borna Chorich and David Gafan, <laughs> not a lot of seeded players because, um, I mean, they lose one in Nadal. Mikhail Kukushkin, lucky loser, takes Rafa's place. Uh, I actually have an unseated player getting through this quarter. Alex D. Menor should enjoy these fat, these hard court conditions. He moves great on this surface, and he likes the speed for his game, as we've covered um, in depth two weeks ago. Alex D. Menor report card on Monday Match Analysis. If you haven't seen it, check it out. 
Um, so I, I think that he has a chance to make the semifinals. But I think this, there's a lot of players who can get through here. Kane Shikori, obviously, um, is the favorite to get out of this quarter. Uh, Dark Horse, Guido Pela continues to put um, to put up respectable results week in and week out. And uh, David Gafan has kind of been surprisingly, uh, surprisingly disappointing um, over the course of this hardcore season. Take a look at this quarter. Uh, by the way, Demonor threw to the second round. He beat Marco Cecchinato in three sets in his first round. Um, he is... He could draw. He, he will draw the winner of Chorich and Opelka in the next round. Chorich is another guy surprisingly struggling, and um, he would also be on upset alert. The reason Gafan is on upset alert, he draws Taylor Fritz. I think Fritz, um, in the form he's in, is still quite dangerous. It didn't work out for me in um, in Canada where I, I said that Fritz was my dark horse, and I'm pretty sure he lost. Did he lose first round, second round, something like that? Uh, but I still think he's dangerous on an American hard court. So I think Fritz can get through this. Gafan can get through this. Pela can get through this. Uh, it It is very, very wide open. I'm going with the Australian. In the interest of full disclosure, I actually had to go back and, and edit this because I, I never made a graphic for my final weekend. Um, so I'm just going to deliver it verbally here. I have Federer and Djokovic in the top half semifinal, and I actually have Roger Federer coming through in three sets. Um, I am not going to go ad nauseum. This video is long enough, and this matchup might not even happen. If it happens, there will be a preview video, so I'm not going to explain myself right now, but I actually have Federer uh, getting through a potential semifinal with Djokovic. Uh, in the bottom half semifinal, we might get a weird one. I have RBA against Alex D. Menor, and uh, I have RBA. Although, um, what a what an interesting matchup that would be. Two very flat hitters <laughs> who are, um, you know, have kind of uh, whip-like forehands. It would be strange. It would be a strange matchup. The ball wouldn't get above this height the entire match if those two played. Um, and then I think you could guess this one, but uh, Federer over RBA in the final. So I, I do think that Federer has, um, has shown me quite enough in 2019 to warrant um, some, some faith. That, uh, that he will win Cincinnati. The reason I'm kind of fading Djokovic, I still believe that Djokovic, at his best, would definitely have the upper hand over Roger Federer. Um, Djokovic coming off vacation, coming off time off, has not been good this year. He has made it very clear that his priorities are the majors. He came into the year, he started the year at Doha, lost to RBA, won the Australian Open, took some time off, took some vacation, came back, sunshine double, loses to Philip Kohlschreiber, doesn't do well in Miami either. After that, takes some time off, again, no big tournaments until the start of clay court season, comes to Monte Carlo. Doesn't look to be in great shape and loses 
to Daniil Medvedev. Gets in shape by by Roland Garros time. Djokovic was in shape. Now it's post Wimbledon. Um, again, there's there's time off. There's vacation, and Djokovic in this position, scheduling wise, has not looked as strong. And I think that that's that that's enough for me um, to to go ahead and pick Federer. And I'll talk more. Obviously, if the matchup happens, I will preview it in in way more depth. And that's it. We have that's all we have for today. I will try to do some um, some content during the week since I'm here in New York. I was in LA last week. Um, it's still busy, but I'm going to try to do some midweek content. Look out for that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.